All right, well, we're back in Romans chapter 11, and I am going to try really, really hard to uh, finish this passage this evening. And um, I thought that there were some things that needed to be said last week, and so I, I slowed down a bit. But um, the, remember, the Apostle Paul is addressing this idea that he presents in verse 6, that the Word of God has not failed just because the bulk of the Jewish people have rejected their Messiah. He sees this working out as a plan. And uh, in chapter 11, we see further how that plan is going to result in great good. Um, so in verse 11 of chapter 11, uh, which you see at the top there, he says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? or another translation has it, in order that they would fall beyond recovery. By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not, uh, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You should memorize that verse. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so also they have now become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. 
Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Phew! That's all I've got to say. I'm telling you, when you read Paul, it hurts your brain. It just, you've got to keep up with this guy because he's juggling multiple balls at the same time. And you just have to keep tuned in and follow that argument all the way through. This is why uh, up until recently, I've been reading chapter by chapter and been hitting these large chunks because you really, you, you know, I, I've preached on verses and small passages on Sunday morning, uh, as I've said, topic by topic and application, um, trying to apply various topics to people. Um, for instance, Sunday morning and uh, the section about uh, being respectful to authority. And there are sections like that, but it's always part of a broader argument that the Apostle Paul is making. And so we're continuing in this argument about predestination. The question that he's answering here continues to be, has God given up on the Jews? And his answer is once again an emphatic no. Meganoita, may it never be. In fact, this is the third time that Paul has emphasized that God is still at work with Israel. In the theme verse of this section that I mentioned earlier, Paul taught that there is a spiritual Israel. He said, quote, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Remember, that's the theme of the whole section of chapters 9 through 11, that God's word has not failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And we observed that what this means is that there is a spiritual Israel and a natural Israel, and that that spiritual Israel represents, uh, the spiritual Israel coming out of natural Israel represents a remnant. Um, then he says, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, and that's in 9.8. So even though natural and national Israel had rejected Messiah, it has always been the remnant that God works through. In chapter 9, verse 27, he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. And then Paul strongly desires the salvation of his people. In 9.3, he offered to be accursed if they could get into heaven. In 10.1, he emphasized uh, that it is his heart's desire and prayer for them to be saved. Then in 11.1, as we observed last week, Paul asks, has God rejected his people? By no means, he said there once again. He said that he himself was an Israelite. So he identifies himself as proof because he's part of that remnant that he's speaking of, that remnant of natural Israel that is also the Israel of faith, spiritual Israel. Now he asks if Israel has stumbled beyond recovery, and his answer again is the emphatic by no means. So that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to get across in 9 through 11. The emphasis many times by Christians in certain theological camps is predestination. But God's, uh, the Apostle Paul's point here is that God has not given up on his people. Indeed, he has chosen them, but it doesn't mean that they are all automatically going to heaven just because they are natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He makes that clear in the passage that we're in right now. So God has a plan which has resulted in the salvation of those who were not previously among the chosen people, and that's us in this room right now. In fact, 
the Jewish rejection has resulted in the gospel being seen by Gentiles as their own. And that was definitely the case in Rome, right? So, a little review of history. The Emperor Claudius, shortly after uh, he married... No, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't after he married this woman. This may have been the result of his reversal of thinking. Uh, the Emperor Claudius, not too long after he took power in A.D. 49, had the Jews thrown out of the city of Rome because of controversies that were taking place there. And it is likely, when we read secular historians from that period, that the controversy was over Christianity and uh, the Jewish uh, division over Christianity. So Claudius, the emperor, just threw them all out of Rome in 49 A.D. Well, the result here was that a church that early on that was predominantly Jewish suddenly became dominantly Gentile in the city that was uh, at the center of the, uh, the Western world at that point in time. Well, that's a very big deal because that's pretty much the first time that that had happened. Now, there was the first Gentile church in Antioch, and uh, there's a possibility that it may have uh, had a majority of Gentiles. So there was a, certainly a Gentile focus there. But this is a really big deal because in all likelihood, the leadership that was taken originally by the Jewish people was then shifted to the Gentiles. Well, Claudius then married a woman um, who was, uh, excuse me, Nero later married a woman who was pro-Jewish. Her name was Poppea, I believe was her name. And that caused there to be a, an open-armed acceptance of the Jewish people to return to Rome. Now, this was a short-lived acceptance because in 70 AD, uh, two years after Nero's death, um, Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus. Uh, and uh, that's when the temple was destroyed, and the temple has never been rebuilt. That happened in 70 AD. So this expulsion of the Jews from Rome resulted in the Gentiles gaining ascendancy in this major city. And so the Apostle Paul uh, is trying to say that it was God's purpose, that God permitted this to take place, that God foreknew this would take place. And the result of the Jewish people rejecting the Messiah was the Gentiles saying, oh, well, this is not just a Jewish sect. And this is a really big deal because Romans didn't really like the Jewish people. They, they let them be. They respected them at times. But you can see by the Apostle Paul's um, reception or lack thereof in Philippi that Romans were not fond of the Jewish people at all. Remember, the Apostle Paul found no uh, synagogue in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman um, city uh, in the Greek lands. And there was no synagogue there, and that's where he would typically go. He would go to the synagogue, he'd preach to the Jews first, and then he would extend and expand his preaching to the Gentiles. Well, when he got to Philippi, no synagogue. So he went out to a river that was near there, and there were a few women out there who were having a time of prayer. So he preached the gospel to them. The first convert in Philippi was a woman named Lydia, who was probably fairly wealthy. She's called a seller of purple. And purple was only worn by royalty. You weren't allowed to wear purple if you were not uh, of noble birth. And uh, the Apostle Paul was there preaching for a while. He met with some success. But uh, then he encountered a woman who apparently, a slave, uh, who 
was kind of like a fortune teller, sort of. And she made a lot of money for her masters, but she kept following Paul around saying, these men are ministers of the Most High God, and they are proclaiming to you, you know. And so the Apostle Paul turned around to this woman who was potentially possessed and told her to be silent and rebuke the devil, and suddenly she couldn't tell fortunes anymore. She couldn't foresee or foretell or do anything. Well, the, the Romans who were making money from her got angry and took Paul and Silas before the city officials, and they had them beaten and thrown in jail. And they said, the statement that they made was, these Jews are bringing customs that are not lawful for we Romans to accept. So you can see there that Christianity is just perceived to be a part of Judaism. It's just another Jewish sect. But once the Jews are expelled from Rome, and this would be the case in other parts of the Gentile world as well, then the Gentiles say, you know, this is our religion, all right? Now, I know we don't like the word religion, but essentially, this is our faith. This is, this is you know, this belongs to us. It's not just us coattailing in on the Jews. So I think that the Apostle Paul is trying to say something like that when he's telling us that the Jewish rejection has resulted in Gentile acceptance of the gospel, all right? The trespass of the Jews has resulted in salvation for the Gentiles, but their future acceptance of the gospel will portend nothing less than a worldwide revival. So the Apostle Paul has a strong faith that the Jewish people are going to return. Uh, listen to verse 15. Do I have 15 up there? No, let's go to the next uh, slide there. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, so that's what he sees, that the Jewish rejection has, has meant and is meaning reconciliation of the world, all right, reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. He says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Y'all, I just want you to know that's just a really big deal. And there are those that believe that there will be a large-scale Jewish awakening, if you will, return to their own Messiah before Christ returns. And what I think may well happen is this. You may see a decline, and we are, I think, at least in our land, in our nation, seeing a decline in the acceptance of Christianity, at least culturally that is the case. Um, I'm really not sure that there are fewer Christians, as in legitimate, genuine, heartfelt believers, than there ever have been. There are just fewer nominal Christians. There are fewer cultural Christians because it's no longer popular to be a Christian. In fact, as I've indicated in here before on several occasions, I believe that we are dealing with the spirit of the Antichrist right now. It's an Antichrist spirit. It is a spirit that is against Christ. And that's what you see in the culture. So I don't care if it's the alt-right, right, running around out there with these flags, uh, these folks, many of them are, they're anti-Semitic, and many of them are even atheists. So the idea that, you know, the alt-right and Christians are together is just absolutely wrong. And then leftists, you know, there were once liberals who were open-minded and willing to be tolerant and allow free speech. That's not what we see anymore. Anybody who says anything that these leftists don't like, they don't want to debate they want to shout you down and shut you up. You don't get a voice. If you say what they don't like, they're not going to let you talk. So Ben Shapiro 
was at Berkeley, and they spent $600,000 uh, in security to make certain that there wasn't another huge incident like there was when there was a previous conservative speaker there. I read today that uh, Shapiro is going to another university to speak, and this organization called An Antifa, the anti-fascists, Okay, let's just get this clear. Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew. He wears a yarmulke. He is hated by the alt-right. And the Antifa are what? What are they? They're anti-fascists. Fascists were what again? Oh, Nazis. That's right. Nazis were in love with people like Ben Shapiro. No, these people are just leftists. That's all they are. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. It doesn't matter if it's the far left. It doesn't matter if it's the far right. That's what it is. As Christians, we need to love everybody and we need to preach the gospel. And it's very hard not to want to jump into the middle of politics because this is ruining our country. It is ruining our country. I mean, when you can't even go to a football game and enjoy the game, it's ruining our country. And these people are happy to do it because I'm going to just tell you the truth. They hate America. They hate it. Right? Antifa, this organization that I mentioned to you, uh, one of the most recent protests, the most visible vocal protests that they did, they were chanting, no Trump, no wall, no USA at all. Really? So see, let's conflate all of those things together. Trump, the wall, and our United States of America. No. We need to pray. We need to pray hard because the gospel needs to go forth. And if these people get in control... They're going to shut us down. They're going to shut your mouth, all right? You have this Dianne Feinstein uh, from California who is essentially leveling criticism at a Catholic who had been appointed to, I believe, a judgeship. And she said it was essentially a religious test. She said your, your, your Catholic beliefs are, uh, are problematic, she said. Are, are you serious? This is the United States of America. So here's the thing. We need to love people. We need to preach the gospel. But we do not need to be blind to what's going on in our country. See, genuine, a genuine liberal is going to be willing to be open-minded and listen to the other side. That's a genuine liberal. A genuine conservative is principled, not just passionately screaming in the street and waving Nazi flags or Confederate flags. That's not conservatism, and leftists are not liberals. I would be happy to sit down and talk to a conservative. I'd be happy to sit down and talk to a liberal. These people don't want to talk. They want to scream. I'm not going to do it, right? I'm not going to do it. I'm not doing it on Facebook anymore. I'm not going to do it. I want to love people. I want to preach the gospel, and I want to tell you the truth. So here I am in here telling you this on a Wednesday night and hoping that it has a positive impact on you, all right? But the Apostle Paul sees something bad happening, all right? So we see something bad happening in our country right now. It seems like we're losing ground as Christians. And the Apostle Paul sees his own people rejecting Messiah, and he makes something good out of it. He sees God doing something good as the result, and he says, their rejection has resulted in reconciliation of the Gentiles to God. What will their acceptance of the gospel mean but a wholesale revival, a, a awakening, if you will, okay? Um, and I just, I, I think that that is something that we can look forward to. Um, all right, so let's take a look at verse 16. I'm going to separate verse 16 out, and then I'll put it back in 
uh, its context. It almost seems to stand alone there until you see what comes after it. But I want to make a couple of applications here, uh, practical applications from verse 16, which you would expect probably a pastor to make. Um, verse 16 says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. All right? So the dough, right? Anybody ever made bread? Right? Bread? Anybody? Even I've made bread. It didn't turn out very good. Because as it turns out, bread is pretty hard to make, right? Unless you have a bread machine. I don't even know if people have those anymore. But yeah, you, you know, you've got this, this whole, you know, you got all your dough together. I made pizza dough for a while. Like, I, you know, spent this huge amount of money going to Baylor University, got my degree, graduated, went back to Phoenix, and couldn't get a job. Worked at Peter Piper, Peter Piper Pizza all summer long. Huge. I mean, we had this huge mixing bowl. It was like this big, and you put all the flour in there, you know, and, and the oil, and, and then this thing. You had this big arm that just went around and mixed it, and it was a huge, huge wadge of dough. And then you took a dough knife, and you took some of that dough, and you cut it off. That's the lump, right? And then you took that and you rolled it out on the counter and then you took a pizza blank, the, the very pans that uh, they would cook the pizza in and serve it in. You put that down on the side and took a knife and cut around it so that you would have the size that you need. Now, I wasn't one of those real fancy guys ready to throw it up in the air. Didn't do that. All right. Uh, we had to just smoosh it out. So what I'm saying is this. This is what this means. The dough down here in this huge bowl that's holy. So that means when you take a lump out of that, the lump is also holy, right? And the other illustration he gives is, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So there's a tree right outside the door here, right? And that tree started as a little tiny, it started as a seed, right? But I'm thinking the likelihood is they probably planted a sapling out there originally. And you could see the roots of the sapling. Well, if the roots are holy... Even as the tree grows and the roots go down deeper and get bigger, then those branches, I, I hear doves cooing in that tree. I saw a squirrel run up the tree earlier today. I saw the same squirrel run down the tree, and I prayed for him as he ran across the street. I really did, because he's just a dumb squirrel, and he's going to get hit out there. I know, I, but still. Anyway, but he can go way up in that tree, and he can climb out on one of those little branches up there. You know what? If the root down here that got started is holy, the branch way out here is holy. Okay, so that's the literal meaning. Well, the Jews are God's people because of his promise to Abraham. Abraham, the root. Isaac, root. Jacob, whose name is changed to what? What's Jacob's name changed to? Come on, kids. What is it? Israel, right, which is the name of the nation. And he has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 what of Israel? The 12 tribes of Israel, right? Okay, so those are, all your, those are all of your roots down here. And then that grows up, and there are all of these branches that come out. And you and I represent some of those branches. Now, as Paul points out in a little bit, we're not the cultivated branches. We're like wild branches. Do you feel like a wild branch? Some of you look a little wild, all right? But there's a principle here that can be applied to many areas of life, all right? 
If God blesses the root, then the rest is blessed too. Apply this principle in the area of your finances, all right? Um, this is where it is most often applied by uh, preachers. If you take the first of your paycheck and you give it to the Lord, the rest of the money will be blessed. That's the point behind tithing. Tithing is not just giving 10%. It's giving your first and your best. Your first and your best. We had a, a man who used to go to our church who now owns his own pool company. He's probably making quite a bit of money. I wish he would come back and tithe. Um, actually, he was here last week. He was sitting right here last week. But uh, one of the things that he used to say, because uh, we used to get him up here periodically and give uh, you know, a little talk and, and pray before we took up the offering, is that he always wanted to give his best. And if he gave cash, he always wanted it to be neat, crisp bills. Now, that's the extreme that he went to. He didn't want to just give God just whatever. Oh, here's a big wad of, you know, here's a tip, God, or here's a, you know, here's a wad of whatever. Well, I don't think God really minds. But see, his point is, I think the same point that many people in your generation, Vernon, have when it concerns the way they dress. They want to look their best for the Lord on Sunday. Now, we're, we're a come-as-you-are church, all right? And you will see me some Sundays, I'll dress very casually, and other Sundays, I'll dress up because I want everybody to feel comfortable. What I'm trying to get at is this. I'm not expecting you to go to the bank and withdraw pristine bills to give, right? I'm not even expecting all of you to dress, you know, your best uh, clothes or whatever. What I want you to get is the principle behind this that men like Vernon and men like Paul are trying to get at. You need to give your first and your best to the Lord. The Lord doesn't get the rest. He gets the best. That's what this verse is saying, or at least this is how it could be applied. I will say that, all right? Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 validates what I'm saying. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So today, what I usually have to do is I get a paycheck on Monday, and on Tuesday, I wait for it to clear. And then on Wednesday, I use PayPal to give money back to the church. All right. Now, I was using text to give, which uh, some of you may use. But I discovered if you have your own PayPal account, which I do, and if you use give money to family and friends and have it come directly out of your bank account, it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost me anything. It doesn't cost the church anything, all right? So uh, that's the way I do that. I've written checks before. Uh, I've used texts to give before. What I'm trying to get at is this. As soon as that money is available, I am taking my tithe and the offering that I put on top of that tithe, and I am giving that immediately. Now, today, the first thing that came to my mind was, oops, I've got a little bit of my Amex payment to make. So I pay my Amex, my American Express card, which is my only credit card. I pay it monthly. You have to pay it off every month. You can't carry a balance. Actually, I can now because I've been with them so long, but I don't carry a balance on it. It is unwise for you to have credit cards and carry a balance, especially considering the interest is between, if you've got a really, really good credit card, maybe 12 or 14%, but most of us are paying between 20 and 27% interest. That's just obscene. It's exorbitant. It's killing us, right? So I pay this thing off every month. 
but it comes in chunks because part of what happens on that page, on that uh, American Express, is many church expenses uh, go on that American Express. So the church pays its part. They authorize it, and I pay it electronically. I have to wait for that to clear. I pay my part. I have to wait for that to clear. Well, sometimes there's this little bit left over that I have to go back and pay again, which is what happened this month. Now, it wasn't a lot, but I don't want to carry a balance. Well, see, that was the first thing that came to mind. And then I went, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not doing that first. That's not the first thing I'm going to do. The first thing I'm going to do is give because I want the Lord's blessing. I don't need a little bit of extra money here or a little bit of extra money there. I want God's overwhelming blessing, right? I um, am going to uh, give a, a gift here in the not-too-distant future, um, and the person that I'm giving it to was saying, well, you could sell that and you know, make some money off of it. I said, I don't want to sell it and make a little money. I want to give it and get a blessing. And the blessing, I even, it doesn't matter if I get anything back for that. The blessing is giving. That's, see, we always think in monetary terms that, well, if I give this amount, the Lord's going to give me this much back. Maybe not. Maybe he'll just make sure your bills are covered, but he's going to bless you in overwhelming ways. Yeah, there's a, there are plenty of people in the world that have a lot of money, and they're just miserable people. They're just miserable. You can be miserable. You can have lots of money and lots of stuff and be a miserable person and be miserable to other people as well, right? What we need is we need the Lord's blessing. We need to put ourselves in that position. So understand that that's what the Lord said. This is why we tithe. The tithe is not just 10%. It is the first 10%. God will bless you with abundance as a result of your faithfulness, not just in the things that you need, but in what brings you joy. God will provide joy for you. He'll make sure that the money you do have goes further. He'll make sure that you don't have so many car breakdowns. Maybe he'll make sure that somebody nice like me is uh, around when you have a flat tire. There was a guy out here earlier, a lady and a, and a man, and uh, they had a Ford F-150 truck, I don't know, probably 2010, 11, 12, somewhere around there, and the back tire was flat. And I saw that when I came in, and I thought, you know, I've got a pump in the back back here. And uh, I was, <laughs> Lee, I was tempted to plug it in and just go out there and pump it up for him without them knowing. But I thought, you know what? The way people are today, not going to do a thing, right? <laughs> so I saw him out there, and they, you know, he was on the phone, and they were just going, what do we do? <laughs> you know? And I was like, I said, is that your truck? Yeah. I said, you know, I've got a pump in here. And they're, oh, really? So I came out there, and I pumped up their tire. So I don't know if they're tithing, and that's the result of their tithing. I'm just simply saying, if you put yourself in the position of being a blessing to other people, God is going to make sure that you're able to continue to be a blessing. Amen? That's what we're saying here, all right? So this is your practical side. A lot of theology tonight, but here's the practical side. Um, and here's my backing for the fact that when things break down, the Lord's going to take care of you, or maybe, in fact, in all likelihood, far fewer things are going to break down. He says in Malachi 3.11, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Well, back then, they're an agrarian culture. You and I have a lot of different things that the devourer comes in, like flat tires and blown water pumps and who knows what else, right? The Lord is going to take care of you when you show him that you're trustworthy, all right? So... Um, Giving my first to God is demonstration that I'm not serving money. 
Instead, I dedicate my money to serve God. That's why Christian people wanted the words, in God we trust, on our money, right? Because Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. You can't put your trust in money and stuff and put your trust in God. You're doing either or. Now, money makes an awesome servant. Money can do a lot of things when you are the master and the Lord is your Lord and master. But what happens is we start getting a little bit of money and we start going, mm, you look good, girl. How about I go out with you? Hey, Lord, I know you'll understand, but this is money, honey. We start loving that money, and then we start worshiping that money. We start serving that money. We start thinking about, well, gosh, I got to invest this here, and I got to save this here, and I got to make sure because I need more money, and I need more money, and I need more money, and I need more money. You have been possessed by the spirit of mammon is what you've been, right? Or you have at least been influenced by that spirit. That's why our money says, in God we trust. It's meant to give you this understanding that you don't trust money, you trust the God who gives you money, right? Listen to what <clears throat> Paul says to his, <clears throat> excuse me, protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So you can be serving God until God gives you what you want and what you think you need. And then suddenly you start pulling away, right? This is why God keeps some of us poor. <laughs> He keeps us poor so that we'll keep loving him and serving him, all right? I keep telling him, if he just let me win the lottery, I'm going to be good with the money. And he, I don't even match one number. Give me a break. All right. Now, let me put all that in context. <clears throat> I'm going to read that verse again, and now I want you to listen to everything that follows it. If the dough offered his first fruits is holy, so is, uh, so is the lump. So... Yeah, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So, in other words, what we're talking about right now is that Israel is the lump of dough. Israel, and specifically the patriarchs in Israel are the roots. And then we get to be some of those branches, right? Now, what he says is that there were some branches that were broken off. And this reminds me of John chapter 15, where Jesus said, um, I am the vine, you are the branches. And then he very explicitly says that there are branches who will be cut off and bundled up and thrown into the fire. Listen, there are plenty of people, they grow up in church, they get all this truth, and then they just drift away or walk away. So what happens? Well, what I believe is if they genuinely had faith to begin with, then they're going to come back. 
But there are plenty of people who seem externally, they seem on the outside to be faith-filled, and the reality is they're just cultural Christians, all right? And the case could be made here that there were those who were cultural or ethnic Jews, but they were not spiritual Israel. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. All right, so this is, you know, a Roman saying, well, they, you know, those branches should have been broken off so that in order that I could be grafted in because I have faith. And Paul says, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So he's saying what? Don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You need to persist in faith. Listen to me. Listen very carefully to me. Faith endures. Faith is persistent. Faith is not a feeling. Here today, gone tomorrow. Up one day, down another day. Those are feelings. Faith perseveres. I have the same faith now that I had when I was 16 years old. Now, hopefully that faith has grown. I'm saying it's the same quality of faith. Faith perseveres. Am I worried about falling away from the Lord? Do I need to rely on a doctrine like once saved, always saved? I do believe once you're genuinely saved that you will persevere. But I also believe that you need to continue to persevere in faith. I believe, just like I believe in the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, I believe that these two doctrines can go side by side, right? If you have genuine faith, that faith will persevere, right? I believe in the perseverance of the saints, but I believe you have to exercise faith. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He said, you ought to fear. He said, you know, don't boast that these people have been broken off because of their unbelief, because if you choose to turn away and choose not to believe, and you can be broken off as well. Note the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. You see, you've got to persist. Your faith has got to endure. This is not an automatic thing. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. You see, this is, it's so interesting because Calvinists use this passage to teach this hardcore election. It basically, it doesn't matter what you and I do or don't do. God's chosen his people, and that's that. And yet here we have very clearly indicated that our response is absolutely essential. Same thing we saw in chapter 10. So this is why I take this middle ground and try to help us understand, yes, election is real. Yes, God's sovereignty is real. Yes, God chooses on the basis of his foreknowledge. And that foreknowledge is, yes, knowing in advance, but it's also knowing who will receive him, knowing them personally. But that doesn't mean that you don't have the freedom to choose or reject Christ. That doesn't mean that just because you believe you're the elect, that that is going to guarantee you a spot in heaven. You have to persevere to the end in order to be saved. And I believe if you're genuine, if you're the genuine item, then you will persevere to the end and be saved. But from our perspective, we don't have to work up all these works, okay? We don't have to try to be good enough to get into heaven, but we most certainly do have to continue to believe. Because if you turn away, you just demonstrate that your faith was nothing more than a feeling or a cultural phenomenon, all right? And I think it's cool that he says that God can graft the Jews back into their own olive tree again. And you know, man, oh, I'll say this, and it's in my notes here, and I'm jumping ahead. For if you were cut off, 
from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So you kind of have to understand this idea of, uh, of grafting, and I'm not a botanist or uh, whatever, a horticulturist, horticulturalist, but essentially, um, I, I don't know how long ago, maybe 2013, I showed a picture of a tree that was the product of multiple grafts of different kinds of fruit. And it's one tree that bears all of these different kinds of fruit and has different colors of leaves and produces um, different uh, blossoms in the spring. It's a beautiful, beautiful tree. But the, the man who did this has spent years and years grafting these various trees into this one tree, right? So I think it started as like an apricot tree or something like that, and then he just kept grafting and grafting. And so all of these stone fruit trees, right, it has to be the same type. He, you know, what they do is they cut a piece off and they take a branch from another one and they literally put them together and they grow together, right? So what Paul is saying is here we have this beautiful cultivated olive tree and some of the branches represent people that refuse to believe and God cut them off. And now... There's a fresh cut right here. And so he takes you, a wild olive branch, right, representing someone who put their faith in Christ, all right? You weren't raised. Now, now see, today this doesn't work quite as well because many people have been raised in church and, and they've been cultured, right? But we're talking about some of you in this room who maybe you're not all that cultured. You weren't raised in church. Kind of a wild thing, right? And then God just takes you and he puts you right there and he wraps it up and look at that. It grows right in and you become a part of that cultivated tree. But he says, don't be cocky about it because you can be broken off too if you don't continue, right? Some of the branches were broken off, all right? We all stand or fall by faith. You choose to receive or reject Christ. It is on that basis that we become a part of God's family and we have the hope of inheriting eternal life. However, just as many of the Jews rejected Jesus and fell, so you, if you turn away from your supposed faith, will be cut off too. True faith endures. Feelings masquerading as faith will fail. Therefore, real faith is faithful. Faith, faith, fake faith. Say that three times fast. Fake faith. Faith is erratic and will prove false sooner or later. Then he says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. There is the hope for an awakening among the Jewish people. They will fit well into their own olive tree. Many Christians may find that they've added unbiblical practices and doctrines which will be repudiated by these awakened messianic Jews. Gentiles have been in the place of prominence and leadership in the church, but that may well change when many Jews receive their Messiah and begin exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit to equip others for the work of ministry, and I am looking forward to that day. That's cool. I'm excited. All right, so then he talks about uh, verse 25. Let's see here. Um, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, notice it is a partial hardening, has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I don't know if the Apostle Paul would have imagined that that partial hardening would last 2,000 years. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let's see if I've gotten there. Yep, we're still on the same page. I'm trying to make sure you're on the same page as me. Um, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, that means they're chosen, and they're chosen for a purpose. Not that they're all, the, in every individual Jew is chosen to be saved, but the Jewish people are chosen for a purpose, right? They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That means God doesn't, that's, in fact, it's interesting because the, the word, uh, the Latin word for call is in that word irrevocable. Vocatio, vocatio. Do you hear it? Irrevocable. That means it's the calling is not pulled back. Once the call goes forth, it continues to be offered, right? That is the hope. So it might have sounded kind of scary to you when I was talking about the fact that you do need to persevere and you do need to persist. But see, here's hope, that God's not going to give up on you, and God's not going to give up on anybody. The gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. So let's look at this idea of um, a partial hardening coming upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God has a purpose even in the exercise of free will by the Jewish people to reject Jesus. Many of their hearts are hardened by Christianity, and some of that hardness has come in as a result of historic anti-Semitism and abuse by Christians toward Jews in the past. Today, most gospel-believing Christians are appreciative of the Jewish people and their contribution to the origins of the faith. Evangelical Christians, many of them, support the state of Israel. One day soon, many Jews will come to Christ. According to the Apostle Paul, that day will come when, quote, the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And I mentioned this earlier. I'll say this again because it's in my notes again. I believe that this means that the gospel will have been preached. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I didn't say this yet. I believe this means that the gospel will have been preached to every nation, and then the end is at hand. Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. Do you know what the Greek word for Gentile is? Ethnos. You know what, how else it may be translated? Nations, right? When the gospel is preached to every nation, and this isn't just every political entity, this is every people group, every cultural group. When the gospel has been preached to every, then the fullness of the gender, then the God, everybody's been given the opportunity then. And at that point, I believe there will be a wholesale return to Messiah by many of the Jewish people, and I believe that Jesus is going to come back, and you better be ready, all right? What does it mean to say that all Israel will be saved? Well, what that means is not every natural ethnic Jewish person will be saved. We've already seen that there is a spiritual Israel and a natural Israel, and in fact, 
In Galatians 6.16, the Apostle Paul calls Gentiles who have accepted, received Messiah, the Israel of God. So all true Israel or all spiritual Israel, both the ethnic Jews who become Christians and the Gentiles, those from among the nations that become Christians, that's all Israel. It does not mean that every ethnic Jew will automatically be saved because of their natural heritage. It means Gentiles together with those of natural Israel who have become spiritual Israel by virtue of the same faith in Jesus as Messiah. Together, Jews and Gentiles, together, who believe in Jesus, are the Israel of God. And that's what it means to say all Israel will be saved. Now let's look at that. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God does not withdraw his promise, his gifts, or his calling. Although individuals may rebel, the calling remains. The gifts and promises are still available. However, the rebellious must return to faith in order to receive what God still offers. So someone may be called, let's say to ministry of some sort. I've encountered people who are older than me who say, you know, when I was a young person, I believed I was called to ministry. I believed I was called to missions. I believed I was called to be a youth minister. And then they didn't do anything about it. Well, what about now? Is it too late? The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If they are still able to hear, then they are still called, and they are still responsible to respond to that call. So it doesn't matter how old you are. It really doesn't. Because God's call has gone out, and he has a calling for you, and primarily that call is to make Christ known in every way that you can to every person that you can, all right? Um, even when Israel wandered in the wilderness because of their unbelief and rebellion, even while they were under the Lord's discipline, he continued to hold out the promise that they would one day enter and occupy the promised land. He didn't stop. He didn't give up on them. Even when he was ready to destroy that generation of Israelites and start over with Moses, he would still have been keeping his promise to the patriarchs because Moses was a descendant of Abraham, right? Even when the fathers disobeyed, God worked through their children to keep his promises. God's offer is always on the table. Listen to that again. God's offer is always on the table. An individual may choose to reject the offer, but that doesn't make it void if they were to have a change of heart. The question is, and Jesus asked it in Luke 8, when, uh, excuse me, in Luke 18, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's the question. The question is not, does God keep his promises? The question is not, has the word of God failed? The question is, will you believe? Will you hold on to that promise? Will you persevere to the end? It's possible for an individual to scar their conscience and callous their heart to such a degree that they are incapable of returning or having faith so that even though God, for his part, does not revoke the call, the individual is no longer able to hear it or heed it. Listen to what... Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 6, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, 
since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to open contempt. You and I cannot be the judge as to whether someone has gone too far, whether they've passed that point of no return. As for you, if you can hear me right now, if you are moved in any way by this, then the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. They have not been called back. And if you can still hear it, you need to respond to that calling. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So both Gentiles and Jews have a history of disobedience and disbelief, but God in his profound wisdom and purpose has turned them toward himself in order that he may be glorified for giving mercy instead of the punishment that we all deserve. It's like, take this the right way, but God is the master manipulator. He's like, okay, fine. You want to rebel? You want to disbelieve? Okay, that's fine. You do that. I got a plan, though. I'm working my plan out, and I'm going to use your disobedience. And you know what? Your disobedience may turn around and push you right back into the kingdom and push you right back to obedience. This is why we, we need to be careful about rescuing people, right? We need to preach the truth to people. We need to give them room to decide. When we run out and try to rescue people, we run out and try to, you know, constantly, you know, I don't know, be their nanny, so to speak, and we don't let them go out there and fall, then basically we're just, we're kind of like uh, Novocaine, right? Novocaine's great when they're working on your teeth, but... If you, like, had Novocaine in your body all the time, and there are people that they have this problem, you know, their nerves don't work properly, and they burn themselves and they cut themselves and, you know, all the, and they can't, they can't sense it. You know, they're like, oh, I, I just chopped off my finger. You know, I didn't even know it, all right? If I had Novocaine in me, all the, and this is what we do. We Novocaine these people up. They need to feel the pain of their poor choices. They need to fall and they need to hit the ground, and they may need to bounce a couple of times. And there's a difficulty when these are your children, or these are your friends, or these are your relatives, or you know, these are people that you love. It's hard to watch them go through that because you want to run out and you want to rescue them. Mommies, that's what you do. And we're, we are blessed. We are so blessed to have you. But you need some daddies in this world, Right? Because daddy's going to be the one that says, well, why did you do that? Get up. That's yeah, bleeding a little bit here. Let's throw some dirt on it. All right. Scabs up faster. And mommy's like, no, it'll have diseases in the dirt. Let's take you the Neosporin, and we need to put you in. Yeah, okay. That's fine when they're five. When they get a little older, let them bounce a little bit. It's okay. They need to figure out what those choices mean, all right? In the end, what I'm saying is God takes even your bad choices. See, Satan may be heaping some shame up on you for something in the past. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's something somebody else did. And Satan is the master accuser. Man, he's the accuser of the brethren. And he's going to say, you know what? You blew it. God's not going to use you anymore. You're worthless. You're useless. Just give up. And God says, no, here I am. I'm still here. Call's still good. Offer still on the table. Believe and obey. 
and things are going to turn around. Because God will take your disobedience and turn it around and use it for a blessing for you, for other people. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says in conclusion. This is his, his uh, uh, benediction, I guess you might say. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That verse, verse 33, was the verse that I quoted a few weeks back when we were looking at these hurricanes and how God can take even these terrible things that are going on in Puerto Rico, Houston, so forth, and turn them around. Listen, where does a diamond come from? Yeah, it's originally dinosaur dung. So if God can take dinosaur dookie and turn it into a diamond, then he can take all of these terrible things that we see going on around us, and he can turn those around as well. His ways are beyond searching out, right? They're unsearchable. They're inscrutable. That means we can't discover them. We can't find them. We don't know. We don't understand. God says, your ways, they're not my ways. My thoughts, they're not your thoughts. Stop trying to think my thoughts. Stop thinking that the way you act is the way I act. That's not the way it works. His ways are beyond us. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a excuse me, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen? So God's ways are indeed beyond searching out. His thoughts are not ours. Our ways are not his. We cannot understand why he does what he does. But here's what we can trust. God is love. And he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And his will is intimately, integrally tied to his character. And his character is love. So no matter what it looks like, no matter what all of these neo-atheists and whatever other folks that are out there, these anti-Christian folk that are out there screaming and hollering and yelling at Christians and, and God and so forth, whatever they may say, whatever they may think and so forth, you and I know God is love. Not just because the Bible says it, but because Jesus proved it on the cross. Amen? Amen.